Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. And you can learn more about the Yoga Hour at our website, theyogahour.com. Our topic today is healing from anxiety, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hala Khoury. Hala Khoury is a co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World, a training organization that bridges yoga and activism within a social justice framework. Originally from Beirut, Lebanon, Hala has dedicated her life to the study of trauma and building resilience on a personal, interpersonal, and systemic level. She is a sought-after speaker and trainer on the subject of trauma, yoga, and social justice, and she's the author of the book we will be discussing today, Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos. You can find out more about Hala, her book, and her various workshops and trainings at her website, halakori.com, and that's H-A-L-A. Corey is K-H-O-U-R-I, halakori.com. So welcome, Halakori. I'm delighted to be with you today on the Yoga Hour. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in to our dialogue about healing from anxiety, let's start as we mean to go on. Let's start with a yoga moment, a moment of present awareness. So let's begin by just bringing our attention into the present moment, feeling our bodies in space and paying particular attention to the surfaces that support our body. So perhaps our feet are on the ground, we may be sitting in a chair, just feeling the support of all of the surfaces. And then turning our attention to the breath. Noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. Bring our attention to the parts of the body that move on the next inhale. And on the exhale, on the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. 
and on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Everything in this world is a fast-moving current of change. Only God remains changeless. Rely on God alone for support in every situation. Sometimes people wonder how to do that. Start by knowing or even imagining you have an invisible means of support. Include other people who assist as well as helpful circumstances that come forth in your awareness of support, even as you inwardly remember the one source of all. Once again, Halakuri, welcome back to the Yoga Hour podcast. As we were talking about just before the show started, you have been on the podcast once before. It was almost exactly six years ago. I can't believe it was been that long. And listeners can find that episode in uh, through any of the um, podcast apps. You can just enter Hala's name, Halakuri. And the prior conversation was about karma yoga. It was a very good one. So I do recommend that you look it up if that's of interest to you. So, Hala, it's really wonderful to have you with me today to discuss anxiety, resilience, and the importance of staying connected. You've been teaching yoga and movement for over 25 years and doing clinical work and trainings for 15 years. So we're focusing on your book. What inspired you to write this book at this time? Mm. You know, this book has been brewing in me for a really, really long time. Um, so many of my students and clients were asking me to make the work that I did with them one-on-one -on -one or on workshops accessible to a broader audience. Um, and I always feel like, I do feel like this is my calling is to try to take work that, you know, that might be complicated or not always accessible and bring it to a broad audience. So when uh, the publisher Shambhala came to me and said, we want you to write a book on anxiety, I thought, of course you do. Like this is, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, I've been, I've been sort of waiting for this and, and wondering if I should, you know, put together a proposal, but then they came to me and specifically asked. Um, and also the focus on anxiety, which I wouldn't have necessarily known to choose was particularly poignant because I ended up struggling with anxiety uh, five or six years ago. I went through a bout of a couple of years of my own struggles um, and so it felt very relevant to take all that I'd learned, not just from my clinical experience, but then from my personal experience and put it into a book. Indeed. And as a reminder to listeners, the book's title is Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos. So in the introduction to the book, you write, I'm going to take you on a journey to transform your relationship with anxiety so you can move through life's challenges with more ease and open up to authentic joy and meaning in your life. So moving through life's challenges with ease and opening to authentic joy and meaning, I think that's what everyone, yeah. <laughs> everyone would be raising their hand saying, yes, sign me up for that. That's what we would like. Mm -hmm. 
To reach this goal, you divide the process of healing from anxiety and trauma into three different levels. This is one thing I really appreciated, the personal, interpersonal, and global. So can you, because I think oftentimes, I mean, yoga has such wonderful tools for anxiety, but I felt that you put it in a, in a much larger perspective, which I appreciated. So would you give us an overview of this healing process? Absolutely. I think that um, typical self-help books or even healing paradigms often tend to focus on the personal, right? Mm -hmm. Folks are struggling. They want to figure out how to feel, feel good. And so, you know, even with, with yoga, even though this is not the truth of the whole yoga philosophy, but typically if folks are introduced to yoga, they're introduced to the physical asanas, the breath work. And, you know, understandably, if you're suffering, you're trying to figure out how to feel better. Um, I think that paradigms that don't include these other layers often have a missed opportunity to offer people a broader framework for their suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, our suffering is not just personal. And absolutely, there's paradigms that have us think about our relationships, right? We want to be in healthy relationships. But thinking about our place in the world as we're thinking about our suffering I think is really, really vital. And again, this is not something I've made up. This is part of, of many philosophies, but I think especially here in the West, um, those things tend to get separated out. Those would be three separate books, right? A book on dealing with anxiety, a book on relationships, and a book on purpose and social justice. But what I try to do the, in the book is help folks see that the three are related. And for some people, healing our anxiety is about getting more engaged in the world, not just about breathwork, yoga, and meditation. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is to offer people a context that lets them reflect on their own suffering and the suffering of others um, and think about how to alleviate that suffering, not just personally, but globally and interpersonally. Mm. So as you point out, the first step in working with anxiety and trauma is really understanding the body. And you do go into this in some detail in the book. So would you give us an overview of that um, anxiety and trauma and what happens in the body uh, when we are in those states? Absolutely. So my training in somatic experiencing is, is, is part of what really informs the physiological framework that I offer the reader. Um, when we think about traumatic events or traumatic circumstances or even chronic stressors as energy that overwhelms our nervous system, we can start to think about and utilize body-based practices to release that energy. So the nervous system is meant to help us mobilize if there's a threat, shut us down if things are too much. Our nervous system, our brain, our spinal cord, uh, and all the nerves associated with it are, are like our GPS. They're our guidance system. When we feel settled, when we feel regulated in our bodies, we can trust like our we can trust our intuition. To me, the definition of intuition is it's the wisdom of the body, the heart, and the mind. Unresolved trauma, unmetabolized stress bogs down our nervous system. It's like we're running too much energy. We're overwhelmed. And I imagine folks listening can understand this. When we feel overwhelmed, it's really hard to make accurate distinctions about what's happening in the world, right? We might think, oh, this, we might get upset at people quickly. We might get upset at ourselves quickly. 
we're not gauging things properly. So part of healing trauma, healing anxiety, and I think of anxiety as a state of perpetual overwhelm. So what we need to do is discharge and release that energy from the nervous system. You might imagine a balloon that's so full, it feels like it's about to pop. How do we slowly and gently release some of that pressure? As we do that, as we use these tools of yoga is a tool, but there's even other tools that are body-based to help people get grounded, to help people get centered and get present, the nervous system can start to settle a little bit. And as we have a little bit more space in the nervous system, as we move out of a chronic state of fight or flight or shut down and freeze, we start to feel self-regulated. Self-regulation is a big theme in that first section, that the goal is to feel self-regulated. And that allows us to navigate the world a little easier. And so simple tools like feeling your feet on the floor or your butt in the chair, looking for ways that the body is supported. And folks listening can try that right now. Just when we look for how support exists in the moment, oftentimes we settle just a little bit. And in that settling, we maybe have more clarity of mind, more space to make decisions that are in our best interest. So we're looking for tools to get to know our own bodies, minds, and nervous systems so we can regulate ourselves and, and face life. Mm. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about the root cause of anxiety. So let's spend some time there. Can you explain a little bit more about that for listeners? Yeah. When we're not addressing the root cause, what happens is our attempts to feel better are like temporary band-aids. And, and sometimes we need them, right? So, you know, when I was struggling with anxiety, definitely sitting and zoning out and watching Netflix all evening numbed me out to what I was feeling, right? But when I would wake up the next morning, everything was there waiting for me, right? And so I think oftentimes we are sold... Um, solutions to our anxiety that are band-aids, right? We're told like, get a new haircut, buy this thing, right? You know, we're, we're sold these ideas that are about like performing being well versus actually being well. And, and oftentimes folks are really afraid to get underneath the anxiety because it's scary, right? If beneath our anxiety is grief or rage or intense fear or terror, and we don't have those tools, it's going to be easier to just keep managing, just keep numbing out or overworking or attending to others. And unless we get to what's actually at the root, we never can actually release the energy of that anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can get sort of stuck. You know, when we're stuck in this pattern of anxiety, it's too scary to go deeper. And so mm -hmm. using these tools, these physical tools, as well as getting support, can allow us to find the root cause. And when we, you know, what I find is even if there's no solution to that root cause, at least admitting, oh, this is my grief, mm -hmm. or I'm really scared about, you know, X, Y, Z, my mortality, my health, connecting to the root, just doing that often diminishes some of our anxiety because we're not running away from what we're afraid of. And when we stop running away, we reduce at least one layer of that anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
in periods of my life that I have felt anxiety, of course, it's totally understandable that people would want to run, run away from that feeling because it is so intense. It's very, very intense. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the different ways that people do feel anxiety? Because it's not the same for everyone. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, some people feel anxiety as your heart is racing. It's hard to breathe. Your throat gets tight, right? Sort of typical what we think anxiety is. Some people then experience panic attacks where the anxiety gets so bad, it feels like maybe you're having a heart attack or you're out of control with high activation. Um, Some people's anxiety can look like gut issues, nausea, chronic stomach aches. Some people's anxiety can look like dissociation where they don't feel anything. They feel completely numb. All of those are reflections of states of overwhelm. And for some of us, we can get so used to living in a chronic state of anxiety that we think it's kind of normal. Mm -hmm. It's just how we're used to being. We don't know how else to be. And so there's a lot of different factors that impact how anxiety is felt. But ultimately, it's about feeling this state of overwhelm. For some people, it comes and goes. And for others, it's chronic. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good point just to recognize that not everyone feels it the same way. Yeah. And particularly that numbness, I think, is a really interesting version that can take some determination to break through and to feel what is underneath that numbness. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've worked with folks who didn't realize that their whole life they were in a numb state. It took them decades to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So in your book, you quote Peter Levine, trauma is a fact of life, but doesn't have to be a life sentence. I believe not only that trauma is curable, but that the healing process can be a catalyst for profound awakening. And then you write, trauma shapes us. We are shaped by all our life experiences. Trauma can trap us in the past. It can transform us into something more beautiful and capable than we were before and everything in between. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. Obviously, none of us can escape trauma. It just happens many ways in, in a lifetime. But that it can either trap us or it can transform us into something more beautiful and capable than we were before. So it's very beautifully written. So what are the three categories of trauma? as you look at it, as you think about it. Yeah. And so just to reiterate what you just said before I speak the categories is that when, when I use the word trauma, I do not mean to imply that somebody is necessarily broken by it. Um, Trauma can yield incredible resilience. And I think that's so important for survivors to not feel like they're being pathologized, right? Some of the most incredible humans I know have gone through unspeakable traumas and that has just turned them into superheroes. Um, so the three categories I like to talk about are uh, are shock traumas. Shock traumas are events, events that are overwhelming. They overwhelm our capacity to cope and respond. And they leave us feeling helpless and hopeless and out of control. And these are things like car accidents, natural disasters, violence, witnessing violence, um, 
even medical procedures, medical trauma, right? These are these overwhelming events and they, they can leave if they're not processed, if we are not, we don't have the resources to deal with them, they can leave us in overwhelm. Now, trauma is not necessarily in the event, it's in our response to the event because two mm -hmm. people can experience the same event. One For one person, it's overwhelming and for one person, it's not. And shock traumas can be chronic. They can happen over and over and over again. The second category is developmental trauma, which has to do with a lack, a profound lack of attunement uh, between a child and the primary caretaker. Developmental trauma occurs in early childhood. Our most vulnerable is between the ages of birth and three. And that's a time, you know, human, human babies rely completely on the attunement of their caretakers for survival, right? So developmental trauma is relational. If we did not have consistent, warm caregivers when we were very, very young, that leaves an imprint and it impacts our future relationships. It impacts our ability to be in healthy relationships, to gauge what are appropriate needs to have in a relationship? What are my boundaries, right? And then the third category is systemic and institutionalized trauma, which is about discrimination, bias, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, the ways that people who have particular bodies and minds get marginalized, pathologized, and harmed by the systems that are actually meant to care for us. So whether we're talking about healthcare system, folks who don't have adequate access to healthcare, that's overwhelming, especially if you have a chronic illness, right? Um, racism, people in black and brown bodies, especially black people here in the United States being targeted disproportionately um, by, by police, being incarcerated disproportionately to their white counterparts. That is traumatic to walk in a world where the color of your skin puts you at risk of incarceration, death, maltreatment. So we need to look at oppression and marginalization as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. uh, these are not discrete categories, right? Folks are gonna experience traumas and privileges within all the categories sometimes. Some people don't experience a particular category. Mm -hmm. But breaking down these categories is important because understanding the, the root cause of the trauma impacts um, an understanding of what the healing looks like. And so those are important distinctions to make. Indeed. And moving on towards transformation and healing. So obviously, I think people would want you talk. We talked earlier. I read the quote about this this um, line between getting trapped in the past and then being able to transform ourselves into something more beautiful and capable in response to this trauma. So. I think most people would want to be <laughs> on the transformative end and not on the stuck end. So let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Can you talk more about the process of, of how we can transform from trauma? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing that we need to transform from trauma is safety, support, and resource. We need something to hold us. So again, depending on which type of trauma, right? So on a physical level, we need grounding. We need the support maybe of a skilled therapist or mental health worker, somebody to hold us. And this is true for developmental trauma, right? So on a, on a personal level, we need to first get the resources and the support to deal with the trauma. 
when we are adequately resourced, we can then maybe feel and admit what's going on, right? So the overwhelm, we need something to help us feel it. Um, as, we, as we feel into that overwhelm, we can begin to discharge it and release it. So for shock traumas, this might mean finding resource in the body, being able to get grounded, connect to breath, figure out how to be in present time so that we can gently attend to that high activation in the body. And when we can attend to it while being resourced, we can begin to release that activation and allow our nervous system to be more regulated. With developmental trauma, that requires some healing within relationships, whether with a skilled therapist or with a partner who can be present and patient, where we can start to, to learn to trust again and have appropriate boundaries. And with the systemic and institutionalized trauma, folks can do their personal work, like those two things I just mentioned, but that also requires policy change and culture change for particular groups of people to not be targeted by the larger systems around us. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's a complexity to healing trauma and those distinctions are really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where would someone start? <laughs> it sounds like getting support is the first is the first yes. step. And then the present moment practices mm -hmm. are also a very important place to start. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, practices of getting grounded and resourced in your own body and knowing you deserve support, right? So for, for especially for trauma, getting a, a, a skilled healer, a person to hold space to help you access that inside yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, how about personal processes that people can do on their own? For example, something like journaling, something like, uh, well, we talked about yoga as a practice. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, my favorite practice is a grounding practice and people can even try it right now, right? Feeling feet on the floor or your butt in the chair, finding something solid. Oftentimes, check in with your own bodies. When we find that solidity, the breath can become a little bit more available to us, right? For some people, doing deep breathing allows them to settle and feel grounded. Mm -hmm. So if you feel anxiety, the question is, can I feel my feet on the floor while I feel the anxiety? It's not about making it just completely go away. It's finding a way to be with it without being completely overwhelmed. That's mm -hmm. the And with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour with my guest, Hala Khoury. Hala is a sought-after speaker and trainer on the subject of trauma, yoga, and social justice, and the author of the book we're discussing today, Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos. Her website is halakuri.com. We will have links to Hala's website and to her book on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your thoughts and questions. You can contact us through that website. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about how to heal from anxiety. We'll be right back. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. Welcome back from the break. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and I am talking with Hala Khoury about her book, Peace from Anxiety. So Hala, we got into this a little bit in the first segment, but I wanted to come back around because in the book, you share many simple practices a person can use to self-regulate when facing anxiety. And we talked about the grounding practices that would be helpful for someone to practice and can be done anywhere. And you also have lots of other techniques and practices in your book. So how about sharing another one with our listeners? Yes, sure. This is another one of my favorites. It's an orienting practice. So if folks want to try it, go go ahead. Um, I want you to go ahead and look around the space that you're in and look at the colors and shapes you see, not things you want to tidy up, not things you want to tidy up, right? Colors, textures, and shapes. And actually... Turn your head when you're doing this. And usually about half of you will notice that you settle a little bit, that your breathing deepens and your body settles, right? Not all tools work for all people, right? But orienting can be a way to get you into present time, at least visually. And then I'm going to invite you to orient internally. So you can close your eyes or soften your gaze and just do a scan inside your own body and notice what you feel. And again, to the best that you can, let go of judgment and notice if you're just orienting to what's unpleasant. Can you rather orient to sensations with curiosity? Like, oh, a tight shoulder, my gut, my feet on the floor. And so this practice of noticing without judgment, and that's hard for me because I walk into a room and I think about how to clean it. If I'm not aware, I'm only tuning into what doesn't feel good in my body and I want to fix it. Usually, even when we're uncomfortable or in pain, there's also other things going on. There's still something that feels good, something that feels pleasant. So orienting allows us to take all of that in. I really like that approach on the full spectrum because you're right. We do tend to look at, when we orient, we look at things, like you said, cleaning of the room or our internal processes. It's like, oh, how can I change that? And yet there's so much right. There's so much that is going well that we tend to overlook in our focus on what whatever tension may be in our jaw or our shoulder or what have you. Yeah. So the first segment, we talked about you're looking at the process of healing as a much broader process than just our personal. And I was very interested in the next phase of healing that you talk about, which is nurturing our relationships and our connections. So why is this important as we think about healing from anxiety? Mm-hmm. So on one level, we all need to feel held by something bigger than us. Sometimes our anxiety just needs a bigger container. And when we have a bigger container, the anxiety feels smaller. Um, Many of us, especially here in the West, have been sold this idea of rugged individualism. We're supposed to be okay on our own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
And that's a very harmful philosophy because the truth is nobody is okay alone. We are social beings. And when we don't feel connected to other humans, when we don't feel connected to the earth, that's going to make us anxious. You can do all the yoga and breathing in the world. But until we acknowledge that we need one another, there's a really missing, there's a missing piece. And so when I talk about relationships in the book, I don't just mean, you know, your partner or your best friend or your family. I, I, I invite people to think about what I call the relationship ecosystem, this broader ecosystem of relationships that includes our family and friends, that then also includes just the people in our neighborhood. How many people know their neighbors? You know, depending on where you live, I've lived in neighborhoods for years, but I don't know one of my neighbors, right? Why not? Why wouldn't we go and knock on each other's doors and say hello? It, it feels like folks used to do that, but we are less and less oriented to our neighbors. Um, even, you know, you don't have to be best friends with your neighbor, but if it's somebody you wave to or you check in on or they check in on you, that can help you feel like you are held by something bigger than you, even this friendly neighbor, mm -hmm. even the delivery person who knows the name of your dog and says hello and checks in on you. Those small interactions can create feelings of warmth and connection. Oftentimes I think we're told only those deep meaningful connections matter, but actually those fleeting connections also can create a feeling of warmth and belonging. And so that's what I mean by, by connections and relationship. That's great. And it touched for me on a couple of things we'd already mentioned. So one of them is this tendency to focus on sort of what's wrong and not see the things that are right potentially. And also one of the first things that you said about how do we transform anxiety is to find that sense of support. And so really this is a way of broadening that net. So you used an interesting term when talking about this. You talked about cultivating biodiversity in our relational life as one way to buffer ourselves from the negative impact of anxiety and find more meaning and inspiration. So tell me, uh, what do you mean by biodiversity in this context? Explain that to the listeners. Yeah, and that relates to this idea of an ecosystem, right, that um, you know, if you look in nature, there's a lot of diversity of the species that exists. It's not one thing, right? And that those connections between the the insects and the plants and the trees and the sun, right, and the mammals, those all are what keep the system alive. And so, you know, for me, before really investigating this, again, I thought, well, relationships are things that all take time, all have depth. And wow, that's overwhelming. I don't, you know, I, I don't know if I have time for all these relationships. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so I definitely never wanted to say hello to my neighbor because I thought, well, if I if I become friendly with them, then that becomes this huge burdensome thing, right? Versus validating the different relationships we have. Again, the the value of the person you just say hi to because you're getting in your car at the same time, right? Um, from for me again, as somebody who really needs her alone time understanding that I can have all sorts of relationships and they can have different levels of depth um, put, kind of allows me to open up a little bit more to the world um, and, and also get to know people in different ways. And again, build that, that larger container. If all we have are like 
the two or three people we're close to and nobody else in the world we pay attention to, we're still isolated in a particular way. Similarly, if all we do is connect to the people that are in our periphery, but we don't have these depthful close relationships, there's something missing there as well. So we really want both. And then the final is our relationships to people we'll never meet. The folks who make our clothes, who maybe cooked our food in a restaurant, right? How do we think about those invisible relationships and figure out how to make them meaningful? So could you say a little bit more about the different types of relationships? And so I'm going to say some of the ones that you talk about in your book. So the core relationships, why, I mean, obviously that one is going to be a, um, a given for people that they're important to our well-being. but define what is a core relationship? Who is that? So the core relationships are our family um, and our partners and our close friends, people that we choose to be around, although family is not always a choice, right? <laughs> but you're around them, right? And those relationships require a particular type of reciprocity, patience, being able to repair, take accountability, right? In order for those relationships to be healthy, we need to nurture our sense of connection. And so those are the relationships that are closer to us. Mm -hmm. And then the next one I talk about, I believe, is our community relationships, um, and the community are those folks that we just happen to see our neighbors, the, the checkout person at the grocery store, the delivery person. Um, those are people that, you know, um, our kids go to school with, um, even people at work that we see that we don't work directly with. Right. Um, I, and, and those are, those are relationships again, that don't necessarily require that level of depth, but, we want to attend to and nurture in whatever way is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the work relationships that you And then, about. you know, work is a really big one. You know, a lot of folks spend the majority of their time at work. Um, this might, this is different right now in, in, for a lot of people during the pandemic or they're at home on Skype or on, or on Zoom, for example. But, you know, for a lot of people, you know, those are your brown people that you work with all the time, right? And so how do we think about how do we build conscious communities at our workplace? And, and I invite people in the book to think about the, uh, the amount of power they might have. You know, are you a supervisor? Are you a manager? Are you a worker, right? Because those power dynamics really matter in how we're building relationships. I do a lot of work in organizations and I work with folks at all levels of the hierarchy, and I invite them to think about their particular responsibility in building caring relationships in the work environment so that work can feel nurturing and supportive as well. A lot of people report being very lonely, but they're at work eight hours a day. Right. Alone at work. Right. Well, and especially now, of course, as you mentioned, with... Yeah things happening virtually rather than being in an office. And who knows, as things return to normal, as we go back and forth, um, how much of that is going to be resumed versus how much is going to be online. And then that's a whole different set of skills that mm -hmm. you have to uh, draw on to have, build relationships when it's in a virtual work yeah. setting. Yeah. yeah. And that's been something I've been, you know, a little bit concerned about. I, I do think that like a lot of organizations are realizing they don't have to be in person so much. And I can see how that could be very useful to some folks. And what often gets missed are those spontaneous conversations that happen, you know, by the water cooler. Right. <laughs> and 
And, and that can really make organizations suffer when people don't feel connected to one another. It's much harder to collaborate. It's much harder to be productive together and to feel good about the work. And so I think organizations are going to have to think about how do we create that connection virtually if it's not happening organically? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. So the fight or flight response to stress or a perceived threat definitely is something many probably most people are familiar with. You talk about another automatic response in our bodies, the tend and befriend. So say more about that. What is tend and befriend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tend and befriend is a stress response that researchers at UCLA um, really looked into because they started to see some gender differences in our stress response. And, and tend and befriend is when we respond to, to stress by moving towards one another, by trying to care for one another. Um, And it's related to oxytocin. And again, there's some gender differences in this, although definitely that that's not, it's not a binary. Um, But part of what I talk about in the book is that if we could collectively move away from a fight, flight, freeze, right? but rather move towards each other when we are in stress. And this is so apparent now with this pandemic, right? That division harms everybody, whether we look at the division politically here in the United States, the division around um, our beliefs around the pandemic, when folks start to fight with each other, when there's stress, we only make things worse. And what what I really think about a lot and what I hope this book will help people think about is how can we be stressed and still move towards one another and care for one another? And how can we see that as actually the healing to our stress is caring Mm -hmm. for one another? And that's what tend and befriend is. It's it's changing our stress impulse. And we did see a lot of examples of that we have seen a lot of examples of that in the in the pandemic in some really beautiful ways which has been lovely where a community will rise up to support someone once they realize what's happening for them absolutely and I think unfortunately what sells in the media are sensationalistic stories of division right and so a lot of that is what we see in the headlines but not necessarily what everybody sees around them and it's important to remember that yeah so why do you think the tend and befriend is just now getting attention versus the stress response has been around, what, since at least I think the 1960s or so? Yeah. Well, I, you know, according to the researchers at UCLA, there was um, a lot of the stress research was done on men, cisgender men. And so there was a particular conditioning, a particular physiology that they noticed. And so for them, part of their research was looking at how women respond to stress and seeing that, that there's some differences. Um, so I think part of it from, in terms of the, the physiology of it is, you know, who, who are we researching, right? What are we basing the data on? And this points to, again, you know, what behaviors are normalized in our culture um, and how do we start to look at, at, at broaden our base of, of what we're looking at? Um, you know, I think that there's some more complicated ways that, you know, power structures can remain intact if folks are fighting with each other. And we see this right now in the United States with the rise of, you know, white supremacy, people calling out, you know, wanting to claim like power for white people as we are 
I think that, you know, broadening our idea of who gets to have power and, and trying to disrupt, you know, racism and sexism and all the isms, um, the folks who've had the power are getting scared. And so the more that the masses can be fighting with one another, the more that the powers that be can, that be can sort of remain intact. And so I think about Tend and Befriend as a as a radical act of social justice, of mm. you know, disrupting the hierarchies of power that thrive on division. Mm-hmm. So you did talk about one particular experiment, the still face experiment and how it exemplifies our innate need for connection. Can you describe that for our listeners? Yeah, the still face experiment reveals how important mirroring and attunement is. That especially you know, when we're really young, we, we need a sense of being seen and attuned to in order to feel settled in ourselves. And so in this experiment, there's a mother and the child. The child is about 14 or 15 months old. And at first you see them, the child claps and then the mother claps and the child smiles and the mother smiles, right? There's this back and forth mirroring where the mother is responding to the child and the child is giggling and they're laughing together. And at one point, the researchers tell the mom to just have a neutral face, to stop responding and just have a neutral face. And so she lets her face get still and and the child claps and the mother doesn't respond and the child coos and the mother doesn't respond. And you see the child within 20 or 30 seconds start to get distressed Mm -hmm. and start to cry. And within 45 seconds, the child is hysterically crying. Um, and the, the mother is doing not, nothing, like literally doing nothing. And the child is crying and getting very distressed. And then the mother is told to go back to engaging. And as soon as she starts to engage, the child settles again and goes back into this really sweet state. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we're not all like babies needing to be mirrored every moment. But when we think about as adults, if we are not feeling seen and responded to with warmth and connection, that's going to cause us to be distressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we all need that mirroring. Again, as we get older, we can we don't need it as consistently. It doesn't have to be perfect. And it's mirroring in a different way. But you know, feeling seen, feeling seen. Absolutely. So obviously, there is a lot of collective anxiety that is happening globally at this time as various countries are dealing with different stages of the pandemic as here in the United States, we're going back and forth between opening and then potentially having some things closed down again. So there's a lot going on and that's on top of global warming. And as you mentioned, political um, unrest, political differences that are very obvious at this moment in time, which can lead any one of us to feel really overwhelmed. So you have placed the context of healing from trauma in this larger global context as well, connecting with something bigger, which also is such a big part of yoga, feeling ourselves connected to the oneness of all. So what are some rituals that you suggest to help us connect to something bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you said a lot of things in that first reflection. And first, I want to say that you know, for some people connecting to what's happening globally can feel overwhelming, right? And so I say to folks, find your peace, right? You can't save the world. That's going to get you anxious. Find your peace, right? And look at where you might be contributing to harm and try to to not do that. Um, 
And, you know, rituals can connect us to, so there's that piece, there's the piece about our responsibility globally, right? And we all have a different level of responsibility, how we're voting, where we're putting our money, you know, how we're educating our children. All of those things are about connecting to the broader context of the world in a really conscious way. And then there's the idea of connecting to something bigger than us um, and the rituals that remind us of these deep connections. And so rituals like being in nature, rituals like meditation rituals, connection rituals with other friends. So there's, you know, I, I give a list of rituals in the book um, and that hopefully will resonate for people. And some people, they already go to church, they already have a meditation practice, they have things that they do. But for folks who don't, I invite them to try some on and to see that rituals can be very simple things that we do. So for example, there's, there's creating an altar space in your home. And an altar space doesn't have to be even religious or spiritual, right? You can be an atheist and have an altar that is filled with meaningful objects, pictures right. of loved ones, uh, objects from places you visited. When we can have anchors that remind us of the sacredness of life, of the beauty of life, that can help inspire us to stay awake and to stay connected. It can also remind us of something bigger that is holding us. For me, it's nature. For me, it's feeling this connection to this mysterious energy of nature. And I do that by trying to be in nature and not be in nature like listening to music or talking, but actually be present, be looking at the environment around me, slowing down a little bit. And each time I'm reminded about this larger connection, it fuels me to go back and say, all right, what can I do to make the world a better place? Mm. How can I participate in this beautiful, sacred dance? of life. Mm. And when I lose connection to that, I get caught up in my own anxiety, my neuroticism, my worries about my personal life. And so again, those worries are real and we all need a touchstone. You know, for some people it is their spiritual communities that that is something that really holds them and allows them to show up with full presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I like your focus on having an altar just be full of things of meaning. I think that's beautiful. And our connection to that which is larger than us, which does not necessarily have to be religious. Mm -hmm. um, so, so as we come to the last few minutes of the show, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? You know, I, I believe in the inherent goodness of people. I think that we all want to belong. We all want to feel safe and we all want to be connected. So whenever I see things that just make me maybe want to lose my faith in humanity, I try to remember that hurt people hurt people. And the more that I can be a beacon of connection, of positivity, of groundedness, and, and positivity doesn't always mean, you know, bypassing what's difficult, right? We need to acknowledge the things that are difficult, but that the more that I can give myself permission to be, to be the change, to use a very overused quote, right? <laughs> but it gives me permission to feel, to want to cultivate joy and hopefulness in my life. Mm. I like to say to folks, you know, we got to figure out how to celebrate along the way, even if we're not going to see the changes we want to see in the world in our lifetime. Can we find joy in the journey and in the process? And I truly believe that people want that we all want the same thing at our core. 
and trauma and anxiety get in the way. And so the more that we can remember that, the more hopeful that allows me to be. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's lovely. And with that, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and we've been discussing how to heal from anxiety with Hala Kuri, the author of the book we've been discussing, Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos. You can find out more about Hala Kuri and her work at her website, halakuri.com. It's H-A-L-A. K-H-O-U-R-I, halakuri.com. We'll also be posting this information on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Hala Kuri, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun talking with you. So join me next time on The Yoga Hour when Suzanne Barkataki, the author of Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice, and I will be discussing the ancient science of yoga, unity and liberation for all. For listeners, we encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific, daily afternoon meditation from 4 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday satsangs from 10 to 11 Pacific time each Sunday. Learn more about CSE online programs at csecenter.org and more about Yogacharya O'Brien, her books and programs at ellengraceobrien.com. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. Remember, go to the Yoga Hour website. Check it out, theyogahour.com. We have a lot more information about our programs, including reviews for each program by our team members and some of my comments about each conversation as well. You can find out all of that at theyogahour.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, think about mentioning it to a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director of the show, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado, as well as Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 